Hey, Worldly fans. Are you going to be in Austin for South by Southwest? If so, I'd love to invite you to join me for a live taping of the Ezra Klein Show. I'll be at the deep end by Vox Media on Sunday, March 11th at 3.30, talking with Melinda Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We're going to be talking about the work they do, about the state of public health worldwide, about what is and isn't getting better in the world. I'm very excited to have this conversation. The work they do is important and it is controversial and it is interesting and it is making a lot of lives better. And there's a lot around that to dig into. So I think I think that's going to be a very good episode. And you should come see it. The Deep End by Vox Media. We are taking over the Belmont for a 3D for a three-day event at South by Southwest. Again, that is from March 9 to March 11th. And it isn't just me. You're going to get live podcasts from many Vox Media Podcast Network favorites, including Kara Swisher's Recode Decode, The Verge's Vergecast. But again, you can join me for a live taping The Ezra Klein Show on Sunday, March 11th at 3.30 for a conversation with Melinda Gates. To request an invitation, go to voxmedia.com slash sxsw-2018. Again, that is voxmedia.com slash sxsw-2018. Uh, I know that is super memorable, but again, sxsw-2018. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. We can talk about it after because gossip is great. Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. So China used to have strict term limits designed to make sure that one leader peacefully gave power to another leader. This week, those term limits disappeared, which means President Xi Jinping can basically rule the country until he dies. So that's huge news for China and huge news for the rest of the world, because Xi has really strong ideas about how to make China great again. And he's willing to oppress his own people, spend hundreds of billions of dollars, and risk war with the U.S. to make it happen. His power grab didn't come from nowhere. The stage was set last October in Beijing's Great Hall of the People when Communist Party officials voted to put him, in a very literal way, into the Constitution. Picture a giant cavernous room, which is where the vote happens. It's all red. There are rows and rows and rows of party officials sitting politely and quietly in neat squares, and they're silent as she speaks. He's saying, please submit your vote. Those who agree, raise your hands. And all those hands start to go up. Those who disagree, please raise your hands. And no one does. It's passed, which means she is part of China's constitution. This week, he can basically now rule the country forever. So, Zach, what does the term limit change mean? So it's important to understand the history here to understand the significance of this decision. The term limits were imposed by essentially the father of modern China, Deng Xiaoping, in response to a series of disastrous policies embarked upon by his predecessor, Mao Zedong. By disastrous, I mean tens of millions of people died. That's that's the level of disaster that we're talking about, some of the worst atrocities of the 20th century even bad by 20th century standards. So the idea was to prevent any one person from being in charge of modern China and instead have a sort of collective rule by the party. The term is actually collective rule that would allow for internal arguments and dissent between communist party leaders, even though the system was authoritarian for everybody who wasn't in the communist party. This seems to have worked pretty well. There were handoffs between various different officials until Xi Jinping decided he wanted to tear it apart. So now that he is part of the Constitution with the extraordinary mouthful of Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, 
I was looking for an acronym and couldn't find one. But what does that mean in practice? Like, what does he believe? And what do those beliefs now mean for China? I just have to say it again because it's really great. Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. And it's all capitalized and it's just magical. So that is actually like basically the guiding ideology now. And it was put into the Constitution. And it's important to note that only two other leaders have ever had their ideas enshrined in the Constitution in the same way um, or enshrined in like official governing state ideology. And that was... Chairman Mao and Deng Xiaoping. So it really puts Xi on this kind of level with the great leaders of China in a way that that other leaders just haven't. And it's also just basically further consolidating his power. So his views are essentially now the guiding ideology for the country. So in particular, it includes a couple things. So mainly maintaining China as a one-party state, right, with him at the top, obviously. Um, more broadly, kind of in the foreign policy realm, transforming China into kind of a great global power. But it also essentially sets him up to be this kind of unrivaled ruler. And I think that all parts of that are worth taking apart for a second. So for a long time, China, as it's been becoming richer, more powerful, more of a player on the world stage, has tried to kind of hide that a little bit and sort of say, we don't threaten anybody. Don't worry about us. We're not a threat to our neighbors. We're just doing this all peacefully. That was a phrase that was used. It was sort of a peaceful rise. But now they are spending huge amounts of money on their military. They're engaged in fights with their neighbors over islands, primarily in the South China Sea, but also the East China Sea. They're building bases. They're declaring no-fly zones and warning they'll shoot down planes to fly over what they claim illegally to be Chinese territory. So you have a situation where he's cracking down at home. When he was, uh, this week, when they got rid of term limits, China went to social media and banned a lot of things, including images of Winnie the Pooh, because he looks kind of like Winnie the Pooh. Um, you have repression at home. You have China on the world stage really aggressively. It's just a different China. It's an openly aggressive nationalistic China in a way that we have not seen since China started to become what China now is. This isn't something that happens in a more traditional Chinese system, or at least it could, but not as easily. The reason why is that in what's called a rule of law or a collective rule dictatorship, you have a degree of consensus that needs to be built. And there were lots of Chinese people who thought that being super aggressive was counterproductive, essentially, for China's ability to gain access to new markets, to expand its economic power, to grow, right? That these things were not super compatible with a very militaristic approach to the world. But in a personalistic dictatorship, which is the term you use for essentially a one-person rule rather than a rule by a group of people, there's a lot more ability to be nationalistic and aggressive and a lot more of an incentive to do it because you need to explain why it is that this one person should be in charge of the country in the first place. And Xi's argument is sort of Putin-esque. I alone can show that China has this great power and great influence on the international stage. Yeah, I think it's also important to point out, we had talked about this before, kind of the way that, that Xi has sold this to the country is stability, 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 right? So, you know, you mentioned earlier how this was kind of put in by Deng Xiaoping to ensure stability, ensure that one kind of leader couldn't make these radical, disastrous changes kind of rapidly. But the thing is, they kind of are now reversing that in the name of stability. And so, you know, I was in China almost exactly a year ago, and over and over, everyone I talked to, academics, think tankers, political leaders, local party officials, foreign ministers, former ambassadors, and just regular people, stability was the word over and over. And they just 
constantly referred back to to the Mao era and said, you know, we went through this massive, you know, revolution, famine, you know, it was just upheaval and we want stability and we think she can bring that, right? So by having this leader who has, you know, guided us pretty well so far, right? And hasn't made any super radical dramatic overnight changes. He's pretty gradual. You know, by having that and making sure that, like, he is the one for the foreseeable future, like, he's a known quantity, that will kind of ensure stability. And it it makes a lot of sense if you sell it that way. Whether that's reality or not, that's another question. Because, again, being, you know, able to have all of that power concentrated in one person means that if he does want to make a radical change, he essentially can. And, you know, there's nothing to say that he'll always make the best decision or won't have, you know, a terrible idea that could you know, have disastrous effects on the economy or or society. The counter-argument, or I should say the argument that goes in parallel with China is stable is the West isn't. So their argument is, look at democracy. Democracy is messy and slow. We want to build high-speed rail trains across the country, high-speed rail lines, and we do it. We don't have this, like, years of legal fights. And we want to build new villages and cities. I mean, cities of millions of people that most Americans, including me, have never really heard of, and they just build them because there's nothing in the way. And they also think long-term as a country. Setting aside Trump, setting aside whether we, we want to say Trump is weak, she is strong, like that's a different conversation. But China as a country thinks decades into the future and budgets accordingly. So they're in the middle in sort of the launch of this project called One Belt, One Road, which is meant to recreate an old ancient trade route and sort of link much of the world through trade. And they have budgeted more than a trillion dollars, and they've set a completion date of 2049. And just try to imagine here, where the government shuts down every couple of months over something stupid, any American president saying, you know what, I'm going to spend a trillion dollars and we're going to do this over the next 20 odd years. It just wouldn't happen. But that's what he can bring and what he can sell to his own people. He can say, I'm stable now and I'm thinking to the future and I can get us from here to there. People have done long-term studies on economic growth and planning in democracies and authoritarian countries. And the record doesn't actually bear out that kind of promise. Authoritarian countries can make promises like, well, you know, we have one leader, we have one system of government, it'll be fine for decades in advance. And in individual years, authoritarian governments do tend or can push higher levels of growth than liberal democratic ones. The problem is that when you have one person or a very small group of people making economic decisions for the country, they're way more likely to make a mistake based on just limited information that they have, then uh, a system where there's collective input, where the people vote, where you get buy-in from civil society. And so democracies have a much more consistent run of growth historically than authoritarian countries do. And China's system was thought to have mitigated this somewhat through the system of collective rule, right? Because you had input from a variety of different technocrats, some of whom who have feet in the business world, some in the military world, some in international trade, you know, maybe that would approximate the inputs that you get from a democratic system. But now we're moving towards personalist dictatorship, which has the worst long run economic track record of any system in the world. So, I mean, when you look at kind of, you know, modern China more recently, right, the rise of kind of the economic powerhouse that is China, you know, a lot of, you know, analysts and political scientists looked at this and said, okay, they're making a gamble, right? The Chinese leadership, the Chinese government is making this gamble. They're essentially saying, to their people, look, we'll give you massive economic growth. We'll give you, you know, massive rises in standard of living, you know, access to new technology, you know, access to just kind of better everything than they've had, right? But essentially, they made a deal, right? We'll give you this if you guys just don't advocate for democracy. We'll just make a kind of pact that if your lives are a lot better, then maybe you can just let us continue to have one party rule. And it was a gamble because, you know, 
there was a lot of talk and, and hope in particular in the West that as the economy liberalized a little bit more and loosened up, that that would essentially naturally lead to more democratic opening, that we would see this kind of opening in the similar way that we saw like in the Soviet Union or something like that. But I think it's really clear now that that hasn't happened, right? It's gone the other way. So we have seen kind of massive economic growth, although it has kind of slowed down uh, more recently. But we didn't see this kind of broader shift naturally toward democracy. And part of that is because of massive state repression, right? There are people who do advocate for democracy. They just get put in prison really quickly. I think it's also important to point out that if we're talking about prisons, so she has launched this massive anti-corruption campaign. In some ways, he has actually taken down corrupt party officials, which a lot of people in China think that's a good thing. He's also used that to take out dissenters and political opponents and potential rivals. And there was a report just the other day in the South China Morning Post that the prisons are actually over full. Like they're running out of cells because she has put so many party officials and and other politicians in prison for this anti-corruption drive. I think, though, on the economic piece, setting aside kind of long-term academic studies, I mean, I've spent a fair bit of time traveling throughout Asia, particularly like the countries in and around China. And authoritarian rule and economic growth are seen very differently there than they are here because countries there look at Singapore, which is one of the wealthiest countries on the planet, having built from nothing. South Korea, which got started as not the democracy, not remotely the democracy it is now. Japan, which obviously has a society that is democratic but has built into it a hierarchy that we would find strange here with a lot of state control and state investment. And so it isn't, I think, the case that in that region, authoritarian rule translates into slow economic growth. I think in that region, actually, it's the reverse. You see in Vietnam, relatively strong economic growth run by a literally communist government, same in China, same in Korea, same in Japan. So it is important, I think, to recognize that there's a difference. It's also important to recognize that some of what China had done in terms of market liberalization is changing. So the Chinese government just reabsorbed a massive bank. China has passed all sorts of rules that say, if you're in a foreign company like Apple and you're moving into China, you have to partner with a Chinese firm. Those Chinese firms may be owned by the government directly or indirectly. You saw just this week that Apple's uh, iCloud service in China is going to be managed by a Chinese firm because Chinese law says Apple can't do it. So you're not seeing what had been the case or seen the trend of Western companies being given a somewhat free hand. Now it's reversing. Now the government is saying, hey, Western company, you have to bring in Chinese firms. And those firms may be owned actually or operated or run by the Chinese government. They're also making, you know, foreign and in particular American companies abide by very specific and strict like rules of of censorship. Right. So um, it's really fascinating. You hope to have these American companies, you know, like Apple or, or whatever, come in and be able to promote the kind of openness that we've seen with the Internet in the West. Right. But Instead of kind of pushing for that because they want access to this massive lucrative market, China's like, well, either you want access to our people and you want to make money, you got to play by our rules. And so these countries are essentially self-censoring, which means that, you know, you're going to have this tech, you're going to have this kind of development. Also, China has developed its own. So instead of like having Google come to China, they just created Baidu, right? Instead of having Twitter, they have WeChat and Weibo. And they have all these kind of internal things that they've created that are also essentially tech with Chinese characteristics, right? It's socialism with Chinese characteristics. And that's what they talk about. Even, you know, when you talk to Chinese leaders about democracy, like they'll say, well, we do have democracy with Chinese characteristics. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And then they actually describe it. You're like, okay, so not democracy. But they can frame it however they want because they maintain such tight control over 
the conversation through controlling all these tech companies, through controlling their own internal communications. And it's really easy for them to kind of shape the narrative in a way that you can't in a messy democracy. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. People say that China has developed this perfect surveillance system and they say that Chinese authoritarianism is popular in the way, Yoki, that you were describing. But Korea and Japan are democracies. Now, they're they're democracies now. Yes, I understand. But they also enjoy democratic legitimacy among their people and are understood and widely perceived to be models of democracy. Everyone said the Soviet Union was stable until it wasn't, right? And then all the Sovietologists that the U.S. had produced during the Cold War were shocked because they didn't see the internal contradictions of the system because they didn't understand what was actually going on in there because of said limited information architecture. And now China is not only moving in some ways in in a sort of Soviet one ruler type of direction where there are these really powerful individuals who shape things, but... There's a question if Xi Jinping really does succeed in concentrating power in his person, what happens when he dies? Like he's pretty yeah, there's, old. There's he's no in his successor 60s. Um, that anyone could have think. And that's a problem. Right. And so now just to be clear, like the Chinese constitution, when it comes to the president, that's where we're getting rid of the term limits. There already aren't term limits for the head of the party, which he is also the head of the party. That's actually the more powerful kind of position in China. But they do have age limits. So they haven't gotten rid of that. So people are expecting, a lot of analysts think that this kind of move to amend the constitution with term limits is kind of the precursor that eventually they will kind of get rid of that age restriction. But he's coming up to where he would essentially age out of the system and have to retire. So there is that. So, you know, just the other day when they made this announcement, the People's Daily, the official kind of newspaper media mouthpiece of the Communist Party said, no, 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 he's not going to be ruling for life. We still have age limits. He's still, you know, people still need to retire because suddenly there was this concern. I I also want to, to a point that you talked about, I think you're right. I think it's important to talk about that there is dissent inside China. And it's really fascinating the way this plays out in the Communist Party. So they can't essentially come out (laughs) against, you know, Xi Jinping. So the way that they do it is like lower level officials will kind of just like slow roll policies or just kind of like not implement things or just kind of do it their own way and just give lip service and just do whatever the hell they want. So there's this more institutional bureaucratic way that they push back that's a much like more subtle but still really powerful because they're the ones controlling things on the ground. Like you have local party officials all over the country. And if they're the ones who are not actually implementing these policies, then there is a question which how much power does she actually have? So I want to zoom out a little bit. What's happening in China obviously matters tremendously, but we care about China to a large degree because of what China means for the rest of the world. And I want to talk about that. I mean, Xi Jinping's philosophy, Xi Jinping's actions matter also for us. They matter literally for the U.S. because we are a Pacific power, as are they. It matters for all of China's neighbors. And it matters if you have what will soon be one of the wealthiest countries on earth pour money into its military and say, we will use our military. We will keep you, the U.S., out of our waters. They're setting up self-proclaimed no-fly zones, which are illegal, and saying they'll shoot down planes that go over them. They're setting up self-proclaimed basically no-go zones for ships and saying they'll sink ships that go through it. That's a level of aggression China hasn't shown before. And I think, you know, as we're closing the segment, to me, that's what jumps out the most about Xi. I mean, Xi is taking what had been a country, at least messaging to the outside world, we're not a threat. Not saying we're a threat, obviously, but saying we are a superpower, we are a historic superpower, and we're going to act that way. Yeah. And also, you know, if you want to be a world power in this day and age, you got to play with the big boys. And that involves intervention, right? So we have seen China actually get involved in Syria, for example. So people don't really talk about that a lot. But, you know, Russia's involved, we're involved. But China has also trained troops for Assad. So 
they're involved in Syria, which opens them up to a you know whole host of criticism, you know more broadly, also in Africa, right? So yes, they come in with these economic development programs and this infrastructure. So they build you know a soccer stadium or something like that. The countries, the governments themselves are excited about this, but there's a lot of pushback oftentimes at the local level because instead of hiring local workers and like developing jobs in these African countries, they just ship Chinese workers over there and keep them super isolated. They build this stuff and then they leave. And then a lot of these people are like, great, we didn't actually need a stadium. We needed like three bridges and a well. So there's a lot of kind of discontent as China grows and starts throwing its kind of muscle around. It's going to start to encounter the same kind of problems that U.S. hegemony has also encountered, you know, for decades now. And I think just as we're closing, we often talk on the show and elsewhere about Vladimir Putin, about Russia. We don't talk as much about China because we don't think of China historically as a threat the way Russia was. But Putin, for all of his weird macho-ness and you know, the fact that he's had success here and there by using Russian force, Russia is a declining country. Their birth rates are declining. Their economy is slowed. They don't have a whole lot beyond him. They're weak. China is a massively growing, rising country. Whether it's a stable, you know, exactly to your point, as we may think it is, it is a strong country, unquestionably. It's a strong country, I should say, willing to spend money. So we think Russia is the threat. We should think China is the country that's at a minimum a challenge because Russia's in decline and China isn't. And I think that's why we'll talk about it not just this week, but we'll keep coming back because seeing what President Xi does now that he has this power is going to be fascinating and frankly more influential to our day-to-day life than anything Russia does in the near term. Yeah, the one part about that that I don't think is quite right is that China is necessarily rising or necessarily going to become extremely influential, almost near peer of the United States in the future. There's an excellent book by two Dartmouth scholars about the U.S.'s qualitative advantage technologically in terms of the strength of its military and the fact that China, on, on a variety of different metrics that one uses to assess military power and economic advancement isn't nearly close to catching up to the United States. And no one's even sure that it will. Also, China is riven with internal problems, including a disastrous environmental situation, rising dissent, ethnic divisions. It is very possible that the China bears, who are a small, but I think very thoughtful. As opposed Chinese, to bullish, they're bearish. Yeah, yeah. It's like a stock market yes. thing. So, Not like small Chinese bears that you want to like put in your pocket. Right. No. Like, like stock market bears. Yes. But there's a real school of thought that says that while China appears to be inevitably on the rise, it very well could be poised for a collapse. And I think that the Xi Jinping move towards personalist rule is a harbinger of these kinds of predictions at least becoming more plausible, if not outright correct. I'll disagree with that, and we will leave it there. So for elsewhere, we're heading to Panama and to Panama City for a story about President Trump that's not actually about President Trump. It's about the international business empire he still owns. And that empire is setting off legal fights, fist fights, and the somewhat surprising use of classical music as a protest song. So we are going to start in a luxury hotel with a man playing calming classical music while there is nothing calming happening anywhere near or around him. Jen, take it away. Picture this, like, really fancy Trump hotel you know, super kind of high-class lobby. You have this massive grand piano. You have this very well-dressed man. And he's sitting there and he's playing classical music on the piano. And there are actual, like, fistfights going on between, like, opposing security guards and riot police trying to, like, escort each other out of 
out of the lobby. So you had this wealthy business owner, right? And he's now pitted against the Trump organization, which he hired to manage the Trump hotel. So the way this works is Trump doesn't really go around building hotels necessarily, is he kind of partners with other hotels and puts his name on it and he gets a cut of the profits. So this majority owner of this hotel in Panama is like, this name is toxic, this brand is toxic, we're losing money, right? I want to get rid of this brand and I want to get rid of the Trump organization. I want to kick them out. They're refusing to leave the hotel, literally. Like the actual staffers are refusing to leave. So they're calling in opposing security guards. The government had to send in riot police because they're literally refusing to evacuate the hotel. So this is all going on. There are brawls happening and you have the owner just sitting there like peacefully playing this like, piano concerto and it's just this bizarre scene but I think it speaks to kind of a broader issue that we're seeing kind of you know more generally with you have a president who also has this global business empire and that's not something we've ever really seen before yeah it's strange because Trump's appearance his popularity internationally affects all of these hotels which he doesn't actually own right right it's these other people so there have been two other hotels like the one in Toronto that have asked to have Trump's name taken off of it because in Canada, Trump is toxic. And in Panama, one of many different Latin American countries that he has implicitly insulted, he's not especially popular either. And so apparently there's been declining business in that hotel since Trump's president. So I went because I'm a complete dork and I read the actual lawsuit that was filed by the owner, uh, Arrestus Fenticlis, against the Trump company. And what they're highlighting is a different part of the Trump organization and, frankly, the Trump presidency, incompetence. So in the lawsuit itself, they're, <laughs> they're not saying we're losing business because of the name, although that's implied strongly. They're saying we're losing business because the Trump company is incompetent. Most of their clientele is, is, is coming from Latin American countries, Spanish-speaking, and the Trump organization has almost no one involved in the hotel who is from Latin America or Spanish-speaking. Shock. But so there's the question of the name, toxicity, and the competence thereof. But what's interesting to me about this entire case is you have parts of the world, India most notably, where right. Donald Trump Jr. visited uh, last week, where the Trump name is still popular. And there people were willing to spend tens of thousands of dollars to hear Trump Jr. speak, not even Trump Sr. And here you have the Trump name unpopular. In the United States, the Trump name is coming off hotels in Soho and New York. And so there's this interesting dichotomy where, as you've seen with Trump elsewhere, democratic countries not big fans. Authoritarian countries or countries that are still trying to emerge fully into democracy, a bit warmer to it. So Trump name in Kazakhstan does well. Trump names in Russia do kind of well. In India, which is obviously a democratic country, it's still popular, but less so probably than in the recent past. And then US, Canada, Panama, not so much. There's also something a little shady about this Panama development. So there's a big Reuters report that I would encourage you to read about how Ivanka Trump, who took the lead on the Panama project, helped develop it. And she partnered with this Brazilian guy who was recently arrested for fraud in Panama, then paid $1.4 million in bail and skipped town and nobody knows where he is. And Reuters met with him at a location that was by his firm request undisclosed. And this guy apparently or, or claims to have worked with various different Russian mobsters in attempting to try to distribute 
residency in the Trump Panama Hotel. So the more attention that this brawl and stuff gets, the more interest gets generated in the actual nitty gritty of the Trump organization's role in this Panama Hotel, and the more questions get raised. It just seems like everywhere you turn, there's some kind of like weird, shady underworld connection in Trump land. Yeah, so there's actually a hotel that they were trying, uh, a Trump-branded tower and a hotel in, in Rio, in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, that actually never materialized. And both the the hotel and the, the tower were named in investigations by Brazilian criminal prosecutors into suspected graft and investment irregularities. So you have that one that's also like now under kind of investigation for irregularities, we'll call them. And you also had to remember, like back in November, so there was like an Argentine journalist who claimed that Trump, who was president-elect at the time, so this is November 2016, that he had used a phone call with the Argentine president to lobby for a new Trump project in downtown Buenos Aires. And there was a big scandal, you know, president-elect who's making these phone calls around to new leaders who are congratulating him. And I don't know if it's ever been borne out. It was pretty thinly sourced. But it just kind of goes to that broader question of you have this president who is able to kind of make deals and has this global business kind of network. And you also have him as like the sitting president. So there are a lot of questions of, you know, conflict of interest that arise also. So with this hotel in particular, Trump is making money from it. I mean, Trump first said that he would possibly sell off his business. Then he, he of course, didn't. Then he said his sons would take it over, but there'd be a huge, beautiful wall between his sons and him. There isn't. The sons said they wouldn't do any new business overseas. They are. I mean, Trump Jr. was in India specifically at taxpayer expense with a security detail provided by the Secret Service to sell new Trump properties in India. And I was looking a little bit into the numbers on on this uh, project in Panama. So in the last 15 and a half months, according to the Trump organization, they've gotten $810,000 from this property. That's not a lot of money for them as a company. It's not a lot of money for him as a president, whether he is the billionaire he claims or the non-billionaire he probably is. But it is just a tangible reality that he doesn't just own these and then that's kind of it. He owns these and is making money from them while he is president, which is amazing. I mean, that is something we, we use the word literally sometimes on the show probably too much, but that is unprecedented. Not in the history of the United States have you had any president since the country was founded own properties and make money from them while president. And here we are. Didn't Jimmy Carter put his peanut farm in a blind trust, literally, to make sure that he didn't have any like financial conflicts but of well, interest? Yeah, that, that's the classic American joke. Right. But, I mean- Look, we're an international show, so this isn't just about domestic U.S. politics, right? It's about the way in which the world's most powerful country currently has its foreign policy intertwined with the business interests of a specific corporation. Forget the United States. That's not something that you should see in virtually any advanced democracy. The level of corruption and the way in which it creates an incentive for the leader of the country to put their personal interests first – that's really disturbing. Right. And to use use the state as a tool of personal enrichment. That's you know you talked about Yochi, how Trump was popular in you know former Soviet Republic dictatorships. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the kind of place where this sort of thing happens. Yeah, I mean to be fair, you know we we are now in in an era where the president himself is potentially using you know foreign policy decisions to enrich himself, whereas in the past we've had presidents using foreign policy to enrich the shareholders of ExxonMobil and Shell and Coca-Cola. So it's not to say that like American foreign policy interests haven't been intertwined in economic and business interests. We have done horrifying things in Latin America, in Africa, to benefit 
oil companies to benefit Coca-Cola. But I think the difference here, obviously, is that it's one specific person. So it's it's a difference between like American business interests, which is arguably a legitimate thing. There are people's lives who are also tied to that, something that you want to kind of look out for those interests. I don't think it's more legitimate than other people's lives in other countries. But it's very different than literally just like one guy and his, you know, a couple of his kids. I want to close the scene that we started. So this businessman, Arrestus Fenticlis, had tried to get into his property. You really love that name. I do like that name. It's just fun to say. It rolls off the tongue almost as well as Yochi does. So he tried to get in and he couldn't. Police came and they sort of helped him get in. So while he was in the lobby, it was because he hadn't been able to get in for several days. He finally got in and was celebrating that he got into his own hotel. So he played, he finished playing, and everyone in the lobby applauded, to which he said, I'm a multi-talented mobster because Trump had said that Mr. Fenticlis was using mob-style tactics. So with a toast and a shout-out to the multi-talented mobster currently fighting the Trump Organization in Panama City, we will end there. Jen and Zach, who didn't say arrest us Fenticlis with quite as much joy, all the same. Thank you. Thanks, as always, to our producers, Bridget Armstrong, Bird Pinkerton, to our social media manager, Julie Bogan. If you like what you heard, we hope you did. Come find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate, review. Tell everyone in your life who can subscribe to do the same. You can email us, vox at worldly.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, hashtag worldlypodcast. We've had some great content this week on a new podcast Fox Media launched called Today Explained. This week, they had a particularly good segment about Cape Town and how they are running out of water and an amazing thing called Day Zero. So check that out. Subscribe to them, too. And we will be with all of you next week. Bye. And this episode is being taped on Purim, one of the major Jewish holidays this year. So Chag Sameach to all of our fellow Jews and eat all of the homentashen. That's what Yochi and I have been doing. 